18. T. For this reason be looked upon as forming an independent system. Their chief purpose seems to be that of spreading the influence of neurons from the central system over a wider area than they would otherwise reach. For example, a single neuron passing out from the spinal cord may, by terminating in a sympathetic ganglion, stimulate a large number of neurons, each of which will in turn stimulate the cells of muscles or of glands. Because of this function, the sympathetic neurons are sometimes called distributing neurons. Functions of the cerebellum. Efforts to discover some special function of the cerebellum have been in the main unsuccessful. Its removal from animals, instead of producing definite results, usually interferes in a mild way with a number of activities. The most noticeable results are a general weakness of the muscles and an inability on the part of the animal to balance itself. This and other facts, including the manner of its connection with other parts of the nervous system, have led to the belief that the cerebellum is the chief organ for the reflex coordination of muscular movements, especially those having to do with the balancing of the body. In this connection it is subordinate to and under the control of the cerebrum, of the relations which the cerebellum sustains to the cerebrum and to the different parts of the body. The following view is quite generally held, in the development of secondary reflexes. As already described, conditions are established in the cerebellum such that given stimuli may act reflexively through it and produce definite results in the way of muscular contraction. After the establishment of these conditions, afferent impulses from the eyes, ears, skin, and other places, under the general direction of the cerebrum, may cause such actions as the balancing of the body, walking, etc. as well as the delicate and varied movements of the hand. This view of its functions makes of the cerebellum the great center of secondary reflex action functions of the cerebrum. While the work of the cerebrum is closely related to that of the general nervous system, it, more than any other part, exercises functions peculiar to itself. The cerebrum is the part of the nervous system upon which our varied experiences leave their impressions and through which these impressions are made to influence the movements of the body. But the power to alter, postpone, or entirely inhibit, nervous movements is but a part of the general work ascribed to the cerebrum as the organ of the mind. Numerous experiments performed upon the lower animals, together with observations on man, show the cerebrum to be the seat of the mental activities, and to make possible, in some way, the processes of consciousness, memory, volition, imagination, emotion, thought, and sensation, localization of cerebral functions. Many experiments have been performed with a view to determining whether the entire cerebrum is concerned in each of its several activities or whether special functions belong to its different parts. These experiments have been made upon the lower animals and the results thus obtained compared with observations made upon injured and imperfectly developed brains in man. The results have led to the conclusion that certain forms of the work of the cerebrum are localized and that some of its parts are concerned in processes different from those of others. Figure 142 Figure 142 Location of Cerebral Functions Diagram of Cerebrum Showing most of the areas whose functions are known. The work of locating the functions of different parts of the cerebrum forms one of the most interesting chapters in the history of brain physiology. The portions having to do with sight, voluntary motion, speech, and hearing have been rather accurately determined, while considerable evidence as to the location of other functions has been secured. Much of the cerebral surface, however, is still undetermined. Figure 142. Nervous control of important processes. Circulation of the blood. 1. Control of the heart. The ability to contract at regular intervals has been shown to reside in the heart muscle. 
among other proofs is that furnished by cold-blooded animals, like the frog, whose heart remains active for quite a while after its removal from the body. These automatic contractions, however, are not sufficient to meet all the demands made upon the circulation. The needs of the tissues for the constituents of the blood vary with their activity, and it is therefore necessary to vary frequently the force and rapidity of the heart's contractions. Such changes the heart itself is unable to bring about. For the purpose of controlling the rate and force of its contractions, the heart is connected with the central nervous system by two kinds of fibers, A fibers that convey excitant impulses to the heart to quicken its movements, B fibers that convey inhibitory impulses to the heart to retard its movements. The cell bodies of the excitant fibers are found in the sympathetic ganglia, but fibers from the bulb connect with and control them. The cell bodies of the inhibitory fibers are located in the bulb, from where their fibers pass to the heart as a part of the vagus nerve. In addition to the fibers above mentioned, are those that convey impulses from the heart to the bulb. These connect with neurons that in turn connect with blood vessels and with them act reflexively. When the heart is likely to be overstrained, to cause a dilation of the blood vessels, this lessens the pressure which the heart must exert to empty itself of blood. These fibers serve, in this way as a kind of safety valve for the heart, to control of arteries, changes in the rate and force of the heart's contractions can be made to correspond only to the general needs of the body, when the blood supply to a particular organ is to be increased or diminished, this is accomplished through the muscular coat in the arteries, the connection of the arterial muscle with the sympathetic ganglia and the method by which they vary the flow of blood to different organs has already been explained pages 311 and 49 so that only the location of the controlling neurons need be noted here. These, like the controlling neurons of the heart, have their cell bodies in the bulb. It thus appears that the entire control of the circulation is effected in a reflex manner through the nerve centers in the bulb. These centers are stimulated by conditions that relate to the movement of the blood through the body. Respiration. Efferent fibers connect the different muscles of respiration with a cluster of cell bodies in the bulb, called the respiratory center. The center together with the nerves and muscles in question form an automatic, or self-acting, mechanism similar in some respects to that of the heart, through the impulses passing from the respiratory center to the muscles, a rhythmic action is maintained sufficient to satisfy the usual needs of the body for oxygen, the demand of the body for oxygen, however, varies with its activities, and to such variations the respiratory center alone is unable to respond. The regulating factor in the respiratory movements has been found to be the condition of the blood with reference to the presence of oxygen and carbon dioxide. If the blood contains much carbon dioxide and little oxygen, it acts as a strong stimulus to the respiratory center, causing it, in turn, to stimulate the respiratory muscles with greater intensity and frequency. On the other hand, if the blood contains much oxygen and little carbon dioxide, it acts only as a mild stimulus. This explains how physical exercise increases the breathing, since the muscles at work consume more oxygen than when resting and give more carbon dioxide and other wastes to the blood. The respiratory center is also connected by afferent nerves with the mucous membrane of the air passages. Irritation of the nerve endings in this membrane causes impulses to pass to the center, and this leads, by reflex action, to such modifications of the respiratory acts as sneezing and coughing. There is also a connection between the cerebrum and the respiratory center. This is shown by the fact that one can voluntarily change the rate and force of the respiratory movements, and further by the fact that emotions affect the breathing, regulation of the body temperature, 
as explained in the study of the skin page 270. The nervous system regulates the body temperature by controlling the circulation of the blood through the skin and the internal organs. This is accomplished by stimulating in a reflex manner the muscles in the walls of certain arteries, to prevent the body from getting too hot. Muscles in the arteries going to the skin relax, thereby allowing more blood to flow to the surface, where the heat can be disposed of through radiation and through the evaporation of the perspiration. On the other hand, if the body is in danger of losing too much heat, the muscles in the walls of arteries going to the skin are made to contract and those to internal organs relax, so that less blood flows to the skin and more to the internal organs. In this way the nervous system adjusts the circulation to suit the conditions of temperature outside of and within the body and, in so doing, maintains the normal body temperature. Summary. The nervous system is able to control, coordinate, and adjust the different organs of the body through its intimate connection with all parts and through a stimulus the nervous impulse which it supplies and transmits. Nervous impulses, excited by external stimuli, follow definite paths and cause activity in the different parts of the body. All such pathways are through the central nervous system. In reflex action the impulses are mainly through the spinal cord, but to some extent through the bulb, pons, and midbrain. In voluntary action they pass through the cerebrum a condition that leads to important modifications in the results. The cerebrum, in addition to controlling the voluntary movements, is able to establish the necessary conditions for secondary reflex actions, such as walking, writing, etc. Although certain of the divisions of the nervous system exercise special functions, all parts of it are closely related. Exercises. 1. Give the function of each of the parts of a neuron. 2. State the purpose of the nervous impulse. 3. Show that the exciting cause of bodily action is outside of the nervous system and, to a large extent, outside of the body. 4. Describe the arrangement that enables stimuli outside of the body to cause action within the body. 5. Describe a reflex action and show how it is brought about. 6. Distinguish between afferent, efferent, and intermediate neurons. 7. Draw diagrams showing the impulse pathways in voluntary and in reflex action. 8. What purposes are served by the sympathetic neurons? 9. Describe the method of control of the circulatory and digestive processes. How do reflex actions protect the body? 10. Compare voluntary and reflex action. In what sense are all the activities of the body reflex? 11. In what sense is walking voluntary? In what sense is it reflex? 12. How does secondary reflex action lessen the work of the nervous system? 13. State the special functions of the nerves, ganglia, spinal cord, bulb, cerebellum, and cerebrum. 14. State the importance of the formation of correct habits. Figure 143 Figure 143 Nerve Board for Demonstrating Nerve Pathways Practical Work to Demonstrate Nerve Pathways A smooth board, 2x6 Ford is painted black, and upon this is drawn in white a life-size outline of the body. Pieces of cord of different colors and lengths are knotted to represent monaxonic and deaxonic neurons. These are then pinned or tacked to the board in such a manner as to represent the connections in the different kinds of nerve pathways. Figure 143 shows such a board with connections for a reflex action and a voluntary action of the same muscle. Study of the knee jerk reflex. A boy is seated on a chair with the legs crossed. With a small wander he is given a light, quick blow on the upper margin of the patella at the point of connection of the tendon. The stroke will usually be followed by a reflex movement of the foot. Does this take place independently of the mind? 
the one upon whom the experiment is being performed should assume a relaxed condition and make no effort either to cause or prevent the movement. Can the movement be inhibited prevented? Repeat the experiment. Effort being made to prevent the movement, but not by contracting opposing muscles. Other reflex actions adapted to class study are those of the eyes, such as the closing of the lids on moving objects near them and the dilating of the pupils when the eyes are shaded. The involuntary jerking of the head on bringing the prongs of a vibrating tuning fork in contact with the end of the nose is also a reflex action which can be studied to advantage. To determine the reaction time, have several pupils join hands, facing outwards, making a complete circle, excepting one gap. Give a signal by touching the hand of one pupil at the end of the line. Let this pupil communicate the signal, by pressure of the other hand, to the next pupil and so on around. Having the last pupil raise the free hand at close of the experiment. Note carefully the time, preferably with a stopwatch, required to complete the experiment and divide this by the number of pupils, to get the average reaction time. The experiment may be repeated with boys only and then with girls, comparing their average reaction time. Reflex action of the salivary glands. Place a small pinch of salt upon the tongue and note the flow of saliva into the mouth. Try other substances, as starch bits of wood, and sugar, what appears to be the natural stimulus for these glands, compare with reflex actions of the muscles, chapter XIX hygiene of the nervous system the far-reaching effects and serious nature of disorders of the nervous system are sufficient reasons for considering carefully those conditions that make or mar its efficiency, controlling all the activities of the body and affecting through its own condition the welfare of all the organs, the hygiene of the nervous system island in a large measure the hygiene of the entire body. Moreover, it is known that some of our worst diseases, including paralysis and insanity, are disorders of the nervous system and are prevented in many instances by a proper mode of living. The main problem, many of our nervous disorders are undoubtedly due to the age in which we live. Our modern civilization, with all its facilities for human advancement and enjoyment, throws an extra strain upon the nervous system. Educational and social standards are higher than ever before and life in all its phases is more complex, since we can hardly change the conditions under which we live, and probably would not if we could. We must learn to adapt or adjust ourselves to them so as to secure for the nervous system such relief as it requires. This adjustment is sometimes difficult, even when the actual needs of the nervous system are known. The healthful action of the nervous system requires, on the one hand, exercise but on the other hand, a certain condition of quietude, or poise a state which is directly opposed to that of restlessness. The conditions of modern life seem able to force upon the nervous system all the exercise that it needs, and more whether it be of the right kind or not, so that the main problem of today seems to be that of conserving, or economizing, the nervous energy and of preventing nervous waste, wasteful forms of nervous activity. There are without doubt many forms of activity that waste the vital forces of the body and lead to nervous exhaustion. Take, for example, the rather common habit of worrying over the trivial things of life. Certainly the nervous energy spent in this way cannot be used in doing full work, but must be counted as so much lost to the body. One who would use his nervous system to the best advantage must find some way of preventing waste of this kind. 108 and do excitement, as well as pleasurable dissipations also tend toward nervous exhaustion, and while the fact is recognized that pleasurable activities supply unnecessary mental exercise, the limit of healthful endurance must be watched and excesses of all kinds avoided, 
intense emotional states are found to be exhausting in the extreme, and the suppression of such undesirable feelings as anger, fear, jealousy, and resentment are of immense value in the hygiene of the nervous system, the habit of self-control, much of the needless waste of nervous energy, including that of worrying over trivial matters, may be prevented through the exercise of self-control, from the standpoint of the nervous system. The present age differs from the past mainly in supplying a greater number and variety of nerve stimuli. Self-control means the ability to suppress activities that would result from undesirable stimuli and to direct the bodily activities into channels that are profitable. Self-control, therefore, is not only to be exercised on occasions of great emergency, but in the everyday affairs of life as well. It is even more important that the daily dweller at his task be able to keep the petty annoyances of life from acting as irritants to his nervous system than that he keep cool during some great calamity. The habit of self-control is acquired mainly through the persistent effort to prevent any and all kinds of petty annoyances from affecting the nerves or the temper. Nervousness. Self-control is much more easily practiced by some than by others. This is due partly to habit, but is also due to an actual difference in the degree of sensitiveness or irritability, of the nervous systems of different people. One whose nervous system tends to respond too readily to any and all kinds of stimuli is said to be nervous. This condition is in some instances inherited, but is in most cases due to the wasteful expenditure of nervous energy or to the action of some drug upon the body. Excessive mental work, too much reading, long-continued anxiety, eye strain, and the use of tea, coffee, alcohol, tobacco, or other drugs including many of those taken as medicines, are known to cause nervousness. Nervousness is not only a source of great annoyance, both to oneself and to others, but is a menace to the general health. The first step toward securing relief from such a condition is the removal of the cause. The habits should be inquired into and excesses of all kinds discontinued. In some instances it may be necessary to have the eyes examined and glasses fitted by a competent oculist. 109 The nervous energy should be carefully economized and the habit of self-control diligently cultivated. Special exercises that have for their purpose the equalizing of the circulation and the strengthening of the blood vessels of the neck and the brain also have beneficial effects. Nervous overstrain. Both mental and physical overwork tends to weaken the nervous system and to produce nervousness. Where hard mental work is long continued, or where it is carried on under excitement. A tense nervous condition is developed which is decidedly weakening in its effects. The causes which lead to such a condition, and in fact overwork of all kinds, should if possible be avoided. Where this is not possible, and in many cases it is not, the period of overwork should be followed by one of rest, recreation, and plenty of sleep. To the overworked in body or in mind, nothing is more important from a hygienic, as well as moral, standpoint, than the right use of the one rest day in seven. The best interests of our modern civilization require that the Sabbath be kept as a quiet, rest-giving day. Disturbed circulation of the brain. Nervousness not infrequently is accompanied by an increase in the circulation of the brain and disappears when this condition is relieved. Though mental work and excitement tend naturally to increase the circulation in the brain, this should subside with rest and relief from excitement. When there is a tendency for this condition to become permanent, effort should be made looking for relief increasing the circulation in the lower extremities by hot or cold foot baths, or by much walking, is found to be most beneficial. Special exercises of the muscles of the neck are also recommended as a means of relieving this condition. 110 Hygienic Value of Work, Within Reasonable Limits, 
Both mental and physical work are conducive to the vigor of the nervous system. Through work the energies of the body find their natural outlet, and this prevents dissipation and the formation of bad habits. Even hard work does not injure the nervous system, and severe mental exertion may be undergone, provided the proper hygienic conditions are observed. The nervous disorders suffered by brain workers are not, as a rule, due to the work which the brain does, but to violation of the laws of health, especially the law of exercise. Such persons should observe the general laws of hygiene and especially should they practice daily those forms of physical exercise that tend to counteract the effects of mental work. Physical exercise properly taken is beneficial to the nervous system through both direct and indirect effects. A large proportion of the nerve cells have for their function the production of motion, and these are called into play only through muscular activity. Then, as already suggested, physical exercise counteracts the unpleasant effects of mental work. Hard study causes an excessive blood to be sent to the brain and a diminished amount to the arms and to the legs. Physical exercise redistributes the blood and equalizes the circulation. Light exercise should, therefore, follow hard study. The student before retiring at night is greatly aided in getting to sleep and is put in a better condition for the next day's work by 10 to 15 minutes of light gymnastics. A daily walk of 2 or 3 miles is also an excellent means of counteracting the effects of mental work. The brain worker should, however, avoid violent exercise or the carrying of any kind of exercise to exhaustion. Sleep, and plenty of it, is one of the first requirements of the nervous system. It is during sleep that the exhausted brain cells are replenished. To shorten the time for sleep is to weaken the brain and to lessen its working force. No one should attempt to get along with less than 8 hours of sleep each day and most people require more. Children require more sleep than adults. Those under 6 years should have from 11 to 12 hours of sleep per day. Children between 6 and 10 years should have at least 10 hours. Insomnia, or sleeplessness, on account of its effects upon the nervous system, is to be regarded as a serious condition, and hygienic means for relieving it should be diligently sought, having its cause in nervousness, a disturbed circulation of the brain, or some form of nervous exhaustion, it is benefited through relieving these conditions and in the manner already described, of course the external conditions for aiding sleep should not be overlooked, the bed should be comfortable, and the room should be cool. While ventilated, dark, and quiet, the inducing of sleep by means of drugs is a dangerous practice and should never be resorted to except under the direction of the physician. Effects of heat and cold. Heat and cold both have their effects upon the nervous system. Heat increases the nervous irritability, while cold acts as a natural sedative to the nerves. A nervous person is made more nervous by an overheated atmosphere, but derives beneficial effects from exposing the body freely to cold air and water. The tonic cold bath page 273, if taken with the usual precautions, can be used to good advantage in diminishing nervousness. The taking of outdoor exercise in cold weather island for the same reason. An excellent practice. Effect of emotional states. We have already noted the effect of certain emotional states upon the digestion of the food page 162. Emotional states are also known to interfere with breathing and with the action of the heart. Such effects are explained through the close relation of the mind to the work of the nervous system in general, while certain emotional states, such as fear, anger, melancholia, and the impulse to worry, interfere seriously with the normal action of the nervous system. Others, such as contentment, cheerfulness, and joy, are decidedly beneficial in their effects. How important, then, 
is the habit of suppressing the states that are harmful and of cultivating those that are beneficial. From a hygienic, as well as social, standpoint a cheerful, happy disposition is worth all the effort necessary for its attainment. The nervous condition of children should be a matter of deep concern on the part of both parents and teachers. In the home, as well as in the school, the child may be pushed until the nervous system receives permanent injury. Exhaustion of nerve cells is produced through too many and too vivid impressions being made upon the immature brain. The child should be protected from undue excitement. He should have the benefit of outdoor exercise and should be early inured to cold. He should be shielded from the poisoning effects of tea, coffee, tobacco, alcohol, and other drugs. He should have impressed upon him the habit of self-control. He should not be indulged in foolish caprices or whims, but should be taught to be content with plain, wholesome food and with the simple forms of enjoyment. Influences at school. School life is necessarily a great strain upon the child. Night study added to the work of the day makes a heavy burden for elementary pupils to bear, though the legal school age is usually fixed at six years. Delicate children should be kept out of school until they are seven or eight years old, provided they have good homes. In addition to the excitation incident to studying and reciting lessons, conditions frequently arise both in the schoolroom and upon the playground that create a feeling of fear or dread in the minds of children. Quarrels and feuds among the children and the bullying of big boys on the playground may work and hold harm. All conditions tending to develop fear, uneasiness, or undue excitement on the part of children should receive the attention of those in authority. Excessive reading is a frequent cause of injury to the nervous systems of children. This has a bad effect, both on account of too many impressions being made upon the mind and also on account of the strain to the eyes. Then if the reading consists mostly of light fiction, the mind is directed away from the really important things of life. The reading of children should be thoughtfully controlled, both as to quality and quantity. Exciting stories should, as a rule, be excluded, but a taste for biography, historical and scientific writings, and for the great works of literature should be cultivated. Simple fairy tales which had a recognized value in developing the imagination of the child need not be omitted, but it is of vital importance that the story-reading habit be not formed. Effects of drugs, because of its delicacy of structure a number of chemical compounds, or drugs, are able to produce injurious effects upon the nervous system. Some of these are violent poisons, while others, in small quantities, are mild in their action. Certain drugs, in addition to their immediate effects, bring about changes in the nervous system which cause an unnatural appetite, or craving, that leads to their continued use. This is the case with alcohol, the intoxicating substance in the usual saloon drinks, and with nicotine, the stimulating drug in tobacco. The same is also true of morphine, chloral, and several other drugs used as medicines. The danger of becoming a slave to some useless and pernicious habit should dissuade one from the use of drugs except in cases of positive emergency. Alcohol and the nervous system. Alcohol, as already shown, injures practically all portions of the body, but it has its worst effects upon the nervous system. Through its action on the system, it interferes with the circulation of the blood, produces a condition of temporary insanity called intoxication, weakens the will, and eventually dethrones the reason. Worst of all, it produces a condition of chronic poisoning which manifests itself in an unnatural craving, and this causes it to be used by the victim even when he knows he is drinking to his own destruction, though its use in small quantities does not, as a rule, produce such marked effects upon the nervous system. It develops the craving, 
and this is apt in time to lead to its use in larger quantities, but even if this does not occur, the practice is objectionable for its unhygienic effects in general. 111 Tippling with such mild solutions of alcohol as light wine, beer, and hard cider island for these reasons, a dangerous pastime, alcohol and crying. It is sometimes stated that no one who leaves alcohol alone will be injured by it. This is true only of its direct effects, not of its indirect effects. Whenever a crime is committed somebody is injured, and alcohol is known to be a chief cause of crime. Alcohol causes crime through the loss of self-control, seen especially in intoxication, and also because of the moroseness and quarrelsomeness which it develops in certain individuals. Indirectly it causes crime through the poverty which it engenders and through its influence in bringing about social conditions out of which crime develops. Everything considered, the free use of alcohol is incompatible with the nervous health and moral tone of a community. Nicotine and the Nervous System Nicotine is an oily substance which is extracted from the tobacco plant. Its action on the nervous system is in general that of a poison, taken in small quantities. It is a mild stimulant and, if the doses are repeated, a habit is formed which is difficult to break. Tobacco is used mainly for the stimulating effect of this drug. While not so serious in its results as the alcohol and other drug habits, the use of tobacco is of no benefit, is a continual and useless expense, and, in many instances, causes a derangement of the healthy action of the body. 112 With the bad effects of the nicotine must be included those of questionable substances added to the tobacco by the manufacturer, either for their agreeable flavor or for adulteration. Relation of age to the effects of nicotine. The use of tobacco by the young is especially to be deplored. In addition to the harmful effects observed in those of mature years, nicotine interferes with the normal development of the body and lays, in many instances, the foundation for physical and mental weakness in later life. The cigarette is decidedly harmful, especially when inhalation is practiced, its deadening effects being in part D.